Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with Kevin Bayouk from Lyft Economy um, in San Francisco, is it? Or are you up in the Northwest? I'm in San Francisco, California. Okay, so a long way from Barcelona where I'm sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, but um, I, just, I just want to say before we, we kind of jump into that, that... You know, you and I have been trying to find a time to do this for like six months, I think, you know, <laughs> and we've been on a number of group calls with, uh, with RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Group, mm-hmm. um, previously, and um, I've always been really intrigued by the, the work you're doing and kind of the parallel, I think, in terms of the, you know, the scope and the scale that you're looking at and that I'm interested in. So very, very excited to actually have made this connection today. Likewise. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. I think we have a lot to talk about. Great. So why don't you give the listeners a, a sense? Um, you, you are with Lyft and, um, you know, there's an awful lot of information, not in terms of overwhelm, but in terms of richness on the Lyft uh, website. Mm-hmm, and um, mm-hmm. I'd like to get into a few of those programs and specifics in a little bit, but give us, give us an idea uh, what the kind of overview of, of Lyft is, um, how maybe kind of how it came together and um, why you're, uh, still really kind of passionate about what you can do through there. Absolutely. So I'm one of the co-founders of Lyft. Lyft in the world today is essentially a consultancy, though we do many different types of activities that are all aligned on a particular vision path with a core set of observations that drive our work. It, it structured as a worker-owned cooperative and we're fairly decentralized uh, as a group of consultants and activists and uh, researchers and all the different hats we wear. Uh, what lifts observations that drive our work that when you look at the disparate activities that we do, the unifying theme is that we see the kind of undue power of the economy uh, the business as usual economy at large, you could say, in terms of its link to the terrific human and ecological suffering we see on earth today. And the Lyft's mission, if you will, or our vision is an economy that works for the benefit of all life, where humans can meet our needs abundantly, food, water, shelter, the things we need, and exchange them with each other as, as is appropriate to in, in ways that don't take away from the environment around us, but actually enhance and regenerate, heal, and, and then sustain uh, our living systems. And we're very far from that economy. Sometimes we say it's a 500 year transition to get to that world. And our focus right now over the next, probably for the rest of our lifetime is to model this idea of locally self-reliant bioregional economies that have the characters that we characteristics that we associate with this vision of a next economy that works for the benefit of all life with nobody left out. And so that's a big, big audacious kind of thing. 
and we pick away at it the way we know how in all of our activities, whether it's managing and creating and managing the force for good fund or our consulting work with individual clients or the regenerative agriculture investing network or any of our field building activities or even our, our podcast next economy. Now, all of those activities are unified in the sense that we're working towards this vision and achieving our, our mission. So you mentioned bioregional. Um, I know people in the Bay Area tend to be more familiar with that. Uh, but uh, why don't you give us a, a, a thumbnail um, definition of that? Sure. Well, when you look at, you know, Earth and human settlement where people live, there's kind of self-similar characteristics of flora and fauna and, and culture uh, around the world that when you look at the regions of the world, we have political regions, nation states and lines on maps. Uh, but when you're actually in the world on earth, you see that there's actually regions that are kind of defined by eco regions and watersheds and the biology, the biotic community uh, actually can be a, a, a label or an indicator. So there, there, the earth can, can be thought of as bioregions and there's a locality there. There's uh, um, relationships in nature that are, um, that partnerships that could be developed to meet human needs. Examples would be where a bioregion is rich in forests, you tend to see houses that, and industry and meeting needs for shelter that is focused on wood. When you find people living in uh, perennial prairie or grasslands, uh, vast grasslands of the planet, you might find shelters that are actually composed of uh, straw or grass. And that's just a, maybe a banal example, but the, there's a difference in terms of how people meet their needs based on the, the actual biological considerations of their region. So, uh, a bioregional economy, a locally self-reliant bioregional economy is working off of kind of a critique of the business as usual economy in that, in, especially in the affluent world, there's kind of a massive gap and separation between a consumer, somebody who's buying food and uh, clothing and, and meeting their needs through consumption with very little or no connection whatsoever to the source of production. And that's one of the artifacts of you know, global neoliberal capitalism is we, we're not connected uh, to the source of production and therefore tremendous suffering can be generated, both ecological suffering, greenhouse gas emissions, climate change, species extinction, et cetera, as well as tremendous human suffering and exploitation. Uh, when we have no line of sight to the source of our material needs. Uh, and so a, bio re a locally self-reliant bioregional economy uh, plays off that theme of bringing the point of production and consumption closer together. I mean, even in some cases, primary producers, people growing some of their own food as an example. But this theme, this pattern of decentralizing what has become this global, uh, largely concentrated, centralized in certain places, economy of exchange that leads to, tends to lead to gross exploitation. Great summary. Um, it, it, one, of, one of the things you, you spoke about in there is um, that disconnection, you know, the economic disconnection, the disconnection between production and consumption and that sort of thing. Um, it seems to me that, that, one of the ways, you know, one of the lenses that we can look at the kind of current crisis on the planet is a set of nested disconnects, you know, in that, in that you know, the, the, the consumer society is disconnected from the, the, the land itself, which, which it depends upon. Um, we are increasingly isolated and alienated within our own communities and within our own societies. So there's that, you know, and, and these, are, these are fundamental and vital connections. And so when you talk about suffering, um, you know, that resonates and it, and it radiates uh, at all levels. 
because we've got that kind of suffering that happens when you're falling through the cracks of the local economy and you can't actually make ends meet. But then there's that, that psychological and spiritual suffering that happens from living in a disconnected world, you know, and the, and the ultimate, um, you know, spin down from that is the crisis of people being disconnected from their, their own selves, you know, and, and the, uh, the, the waves of depression people are dealing with, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's, I think it's encouraging and, and also kind of fascinating that the bioregional concept has, well, it's been around, I think it's, it was named in the 70s by Peter Berg, wasn't it, from Planet Drum Foundation there in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And Cascadia being the Pacific Northwest region was one of the first areas that was kind of articulated along, along bioregional lines. And uh, you know, Bay Area was one of the early ones as well. Um, and, and they had this uh, really wonderful phrase called re-inhabitation, mm-hmm. right? that is is a it's a deliverable you know of of reclaiming a bioregional identity so you know through most of time i think we did humans you know did identify with our our location we've got we've got names of nations we've got place names we've got even personal names that have to do with rivers and mountains and you know geographic features and that and that sort of thing so for this little tiny snippet of highly destructive and dissociative time that's the industrial era um, you know, a, a lot of that was, has been stretched to the point of tolerance and snapping. But I think there, you know, there's this value in bioregional, whether we use it, uh, you know, under that name or whether we're just doing the things implied by that without necessarily naming it bioregional, that is, is, it's a very healing process, you know, and it, it's a healing way to, to perceive things and to go about them. So that's, that, I think that's beautiful. Um, the other thing that I'd like to, to ask you about just before we move to kind of the next thought, um, in terms of the economy, you know, you're talking about the next economy, but my perception is that it's not next in the sense of like, let's wait for it. It's more next in the sense that it is emerging, you know, or it is, and it has an emergent quality to it probably not getting enough visibility, you know, in terms of if like, if, if your total news intake is mainstream, you may not really have a, have a sense that there's so much of it happening, but make, talk a little bit more about that, about, about, uh, you know, the qualities of, of it emerging and, and your sense of, of its pervasiveness. Yeah. And I think it's really accurate. And I, gosh, I'm, I'm going to have to start looking this up because I, I always stumble over. I think it was William Gibson, the sci-fi writer, who said the the future is actually not something that we're waiting for. It's actually here, present now, but just not evenly distributed. Something along those lines. I like that. Very very poor paraphrase. But I, the next economy we also see is emergent and existing. Um, extraordinarily fractured and uh, not uh, yet cohesive and well connected, and it's uh, it's been uh, and, and in some ways next, uh, as if it implies later. Uh, a lot of the the character of the informal economy, the next economy, some of the regenerative economy, different words are used to describe the principles and values and actually what it looks like on the ground of the next economy. A lot of it is an homage to, you know, indigenous culture, indigenous economy, what it means to live in place back to like a bioregional concept for thousands of years without destroying our environment. Um, What does it mean to live in place uh, in a, in a kind of reverential reciprocity relationship with our environment? And so what we found, uh, it's another thing that keeps us from being depressed, really, at Lyft Economy is that uh, some of our core initial work at Lyft Economy is driven off the observation that there are existing showcase examples of inspiring ways of meeting human needs and even transacting with each other that are structured distinct from the cultural norms and uh, habits and behaviors that we associate with the business as usual economy. That, that there, there things exist, examples exist on the ground in different places around the world. And that gets us really excited. It's not thinking about the next economy in some science fiction sense, 
where we're inventing new ideas, there's actually examples everywhere, a lot of them. And what's not yet happened is most of those examples are kind of, as you allude to, uh, I think accurately, are culturally invisible because they're so different from the norms of the business as usual economy that there's kind of a, uh, the invisibility is it, there's a few reasons that, that I think that it's not well known. One of them is just the strategies that we, I mean, most of us, maybe all of us were born, you know, naked, innocent and hungry and, and curious. And, and we were raised and we picked up strategies uh, culturally, what was normal to us from parents, peers, teachers, media, television, movies, whatever. And the strategies we know are the ones we've learned. And these new and old uh, strategies for meeting needs are not within our view, um, largely. And so they're, they're invisible. And in some cases, they challenge some of the belief systems, which at Lyft Economy we kind of call BS for short, but some of the belief systems that have emerged uh, that, uh, about what what is the good life? What, what is personal security? How, how does that work? And so some of these belief systems have really encoded a worldview that makes it difficult to literally even see the possibility of different strategies. Yeah, yeah, I mean, including like our, defi our definition of personal success, you know, sure. which would sit right in there. Absolutely. Or the indicators we, we hold up for ourselves, whether we're succeeding or not. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the, some of the, a lot of the examples uh, that we draw from, I mean, what, here's, an, here's a, a thread of uh, some of the character of the next economy is that we find that the next economy be more inclusive in terms of uh, sharing any surpluses that are generated from producing goods and services that are needed and transacting with each other, that those surpluses would be distributed simultaneously the actual doing of creating goods or services for and with each other would will be a, a democratic activity and so we we draw a lot of inspiration from the long history of communitarian and cooperativism globally um, or even here where I sit in North America the the worker-owned cooperatives uh, and the cooperative movement uh, exists and there's stunning examples of groups of people getting together, successfully producing goods and services in ways that are intentionally beneficial to community and to the environment, and then transacting. And then as surplus is generated, it's actually distributed back to the community or the workers in authentic ways. And you know, living on a planet today where I think there's four people who have equivalent wealth of half the world's people today. I'm, I know it changes a little bit, maybe four or five. Under this, 10 anyway. <laughs> under 10. Uh, this, this just incredible uh, inequity. Uh, it's hard to fathom, hard to wake up in the morning, really hold the gross inequity of our time. And to see a more inclusive and equitable means of structuring organizations that produce goods and services for each other, for us, for humans is uh, I think uh, an inspiring thing. What's astonishing to me sometimes, um, though not necessarily so surprising as, uh, as we really get into it, is that multi-stakeholder cooperatives, worker-owned cooperatives, or even producer cooperatives are largely culturally invisible. And you know, there's a, there's a sense of like, we spoke a few minutes, or you, you mentioned a few minutes ago about not necessarily needing to invent something new, you know, and um, I think that that's so true. It's it's not so much about invention as it is recognition. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if you can just reach out and pull it back in, because it exists out there in current examples, but it also exists out there in our in our cultural memory. Yeah, and so well, and I think yeah, a lot, a lot of the times when we look at the principles of the next economy and share about them, even if it's a quasi-academic setting where we're providing some learning experiences. A lot of people say, well, this is just common sense. I mean, it's decidedly uncommon, but yes, it, it feels common sense. It's part of our human history. 
and this this idea of these cooperatives uh, they and this idea that we don't need anything new I think that's probably largely self-evident even given the urgency and the scale of the problems we face uh, and the challenges the risks around you know global warming and species extinction and gross social inequities human exploitation and all these tragic uh, conditions of the world today I think in a careful analysis there's no new technology known and by technology I mean you know whether we're talking about code or mechanics or we're talking about social technologies of structures and covenants and agreements there's not much new that I think we need to do the great innovations are taking what works for the benefit of all with nobody left out and making those socially acceptable, normal, attractive. And so the, the type of you know, innovation is still needed, but it's largely innovation in developing pathways for people to feel safe to move into that next economy. So in a sense, the short response is if you're interested in the, in the emerging economy, maybe slow down and look around. Observation is really key. A lot, I mean, I'm skirting around without using the word, but a lot of, a lot of my work in general, whether it's lift economy or any of the other roles that I play vocationally or in life is largely informed by permaculture design. And in permaculture design, we talk about our principles of design and the first kind of meta principle in permaculture, we talk about thoughtful and protracted observation or observe and interact. Really careful analysis and whole systems kind of perspective, looking at the linkages and the relationships of what's going on. And so this, a careful understanding uh, as much as possible of the patterns of what's occurring, largely, again, most of the, Bill Malson, one of the co-originators of the term permaculture, he was want to say um, the solutions to humanity's challenges and problems are actually embarrassingly simple and self-evident. Uh, it's the the challenge, of course, is is taking those solutions and making them culturally normal. What's what the I think the other thing that's important about this uh, this particular thread we're on right now in terms of of the economy you know which is which underpins so much right um, I mean it's, it's a whole universe in itself is the alienation most people feel maybe they are maybe they're not aware to the extent in which they're actually embedded in it um, and that's parse partially uh, through an intentional, um, you know, progression uh, culturally over the last hundred years or so, uh, which is, which has really picked up to alienate people from those kinds of decisions in their lives. So most people, when they speak about economy, they either think that this is something that's, that is very, very specialized in its vocabulary and its focus and not for them, therefore, or they feel victimized by it, or they feel like they're struggling to kind of keep up with it. And they don't, they don't really have that sense that this is actually, it's, it's what about we do, it's, it's about what we do every day. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and that's another thing that I really appreciate about the way that Lyft Economy has kind of set out its programs. Um, so maybe let's, can we talk about that a bit? Um, maybe starting with the, the MBA program, because that's really about, um, you know, people being educated in, in terms of how to work with that. Yeah, and, and the MBA is something new. We, we've, uh, last year, kind of by popular request from people who have been either listening to our Next Economy Now podcast or interacting with us at Lyft Economy as clients, allies, supporters, or who have read some of the books we've written or been involved with, kind of reached out to us and said, is there some kind of learning experience? And these are people, you know, in different parts of the world, in, in Europe and in, 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 in Mexico and uh, all over the United States. And so uh, last year we decided to pilot a learning experience, a learning journey, a nine month uh, 
experience of kind of taking what we've, our observations and sharing it in a one-to-many kind of format. And so we created something called the Next Economy MBA. And by MBA, just as full disclosure, it's about as accredited as uh, uh, Trump University. You know, it's not an accredited uh, MBA program. It's not but much more useful than the Trump University. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. I don't, I don't know. I don't. I don't know much about Trump University. I, I, I wouldn't. Let's uh, listeners yeah. just drop that kind of like okay. that comparison because yeah. <laughs> we're not talking about even the same universe. Right. And so what we were, what we the format we kind of decided to develop is uh, taking online sessions uh, of group discussion and exploration of the the themes and principles of the and examples of the next economy, and then some of the very nuts and bolts uh, tactics and strategies and templates that we've developed in support of the many organizations cooperatives and uh, businesses and enterprises that we've helped over the last now eight years or so um, hundreds of organizations that we've worked with we've there's a lot of repeating themes and patterns so we developed a nine-month learning experience where twice a month we get together for 90 minutes and uh, actually have discussion around the the material that we've did, that we've put together over the years and then we have kind of office hour type discussions to go deeper and where possible when people engaged in this MBA program live in the same bioregion there's kind of on life cohorts that emerge and so that we tried that and I'm really delighted with uh, the feedback and the experience that uh, we had as facilitating the learning journey and then the, the participants in the first uh, training. And so we're, we're something that we're going to try again and we've, we've learned a lot and we're, we're piloting and it, it's really kind of new-ish for a lift economy to take our work of supporting organizations almost, you know, in this consultative one-on-one, -on -one, one organization at a time to help them become a greater expression of the possibility of living into the next economy so that they can open source their model and regionally replicate and of course adapt those enterprises in other places and grow the next economy as it emerges. We've now this idea of building and growing uh, a large group of people um, who are interested in the next economy and maybe want to play a role as an entrepreneur. Maybe they want to find a job or a vocation. They're thinking about the 80,000 hours of their life that they're spending working um, on average. And they're thinking, I want to actually put my energy into an organization. If I'm going to be working a job that an organization that's operating from these principles of the next economy or for some of the people participating in the training they're at a, in the seasons of their life they're at a point where they want to take whatever surpluses they've generated from their vocational life and actually invest it into supporting the next economy and then some people a few people are just academically curious maybe they're wondering what role they play as a consumer or as a, how what are the diverse ways in which they could support this emerging um, economy that they know they know in their heart they want to see it happen, but they're not sure what it looks like and how they can get involved. And so the Next Economy MBA is one of our first attempts to really broaden our reach to larger groups of people and still small groups. These are like 20, 20 to 30 people. So if someone, someone listening right now is, is suddenly like sparked, you know, they're getting really excited about this idea and they're like, that's what I want to do next. Um, where do they go? Uh, lifteconomy.com. And right at the top, we have a, a link to uh, learn more about the forthcoming training. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind and Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D 
M-E-D-I-A.com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise. I'm speaking with Kevin Bayouk, who's in San Francisco. Uh, Kevin is a co-founder of the Lyft Economy, and he's also a senior financial fellow at Project Drawdown. Kevin and I have been getting into bioregional economics. We've been talking about permaculture and uh, actually quite a few other in- integrated and related issues. You know, the way things are funded in, in Europe, where I'm based now, uh, is is significantly different than the states, mm-hmm. and I don't know how you know going forward North America is going to look, but uh, from all the, the years that I worked there, um, there was a kind of direct relationship between charitable do- charitable donations for nonprofits and tax uh, write offs mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. That is a much less um, visible and powerful mechanism here. And of course, you know, there's a lot of conversation lately about is America, you know, going to embrace or run from this, you know, so-called socialism, which is, it's one of the, you know, central um, factors of most European economies is that there's a, you know, there's a social safety net, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of these programs in terms of training, training people up for entrepreneurism, particularly, um, would be supported by government or European-wide funding, right? Sure. So I've been looking at a lot of those programs in terms of, you know, what, are they, what do they think is important? What are they offering? What are they trying to facilitate? Um, and I can't help but come up with the conclusion that basically they're about training people to enter into a system which has already failed. Yeah. You know, and so that's, you know, the, whether the whether the MBA is 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 recognized within, you know, the the, the standard or the dinosaur uh, system or not isn't really the point as far as I'm concerned. Is it, it going to actually enable people to do what they feel is important and what we need? Right. And, and so that's really, really cool. Now, now, you mentioned a few of the different types of, uh, you know, kind of personas that mm-hmm. might have an interest in this program. And I think there's one that, that you forgot to mention. So I want to bring that one in as well, which is a sector of people that I don't have a complimentary word for, mm-hmm. but it's not too negative. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think of them as corporate refugees. Mm-hmm. You know, and these would be people who've actually kind of got to the apex of their career and maybe they're looking at it and thinking it's empty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, or maybe they're just looking for the next challenge and they've, they meanwhile sort of uh, gotten a little more sense of, of the urgency out there in the world. But these are people with a tremendous amount of experience. Sure. Right. Um, they, they've learned something over 20, 30, 40 years of their, of their careers Mm-hmm. Uh, they're well connected. They often have access to resources. Yep. Um, and for those who are looking and thinking, well, I don't want to be part of this anymore because now I'm looking at it and it and it looks, as I said, either hollow or dangerous. And I'd like to be involved with that other stuff that I see that I'm kind of perceiving on the edge of my awareness, maybe that is emerging. But mm-hmm. how do I bridge? How do yes. I get from what I'm doing to over there? And I would think that that would be a really interesting subset, um, you know, for this for this Lyft Economy MBA. Yeah, well, but yeah, we do find that as kind of an archetype of a, the, a type of person that we encounter quite a bit. And I think one of the things that we've realized over time is I mentioned earlier that the kind of most authentic expressions of the principles of the next economy and operation are often culturally invisible. There's a dynamic that we see. um, We start to get really comfortable with gradients rather than either ors or black and whites or um, in or out, in group or out group, these gradients of transition. And there's a number of people, uh, and I think it's probably a latent force uh, in the affluent world, uh, humanity, of people who are recognizing that, hey, what I'm contributing to with my job and my uh, the hours and energies of my life, it seems to be, in just even cursory analysis, not, not helping or in some cases contributing to a world where today 800 million people will be malnourished and hungry or a world where 
we're adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere such that we're threatening the existence of humanity. You know, these are terrific problems that are emerging from kind of the how business as usual economy works. And there's people who are becoming aware of that and really frustrated, kind of filled with anxiety and, and they're anxious and they're wondering how to bridge, like you said, how do we bridge? And what, what at Lyft Economy, what we've kind of developed are first like a language uh, and a taxonomy of the territory. So if you cannot see the, the momentum of the business as usual economy, and maybe even forgive yourself for pursuing the strategies of personal security that are normal in the business as usual economy, because that's what you were raised into. That's what, that's all you knew. So a little bit of self-forgiveness in there. And then you know, building on the motivation that your awareness of something is wrong, show that there's a gradient of transition. When something is wrong, it doesn't mean that you have to quit your job, you know, sell your home, uh, leave your family, join the eco-village, and you know, live a communitarian, multi-stakeholder, cooperative, uh, radical gift economy lifestyle. That's not, the, that's not necessarily the invitation. The invitation is to explore the territory of what it means to actually be an active force in hospicing out the business as usual economy. When we say hospice, it's it's kind of it's kind of like hard to escape the conclusion that the 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 economy as normal today actually has to radically transform so much such that you could say it has to die. And reincarnate, and, perhaps. And reincarnate, yeah. So I, yeah. I, I don't want to harp on like we're killing the economy because we're so complicit in it and many are, people are dependent upon it. The, but there is a radical transformation and I find it useful to take the, anybody who's experienced the death of a loved one where they've been blessed to have the experience of a hospice role where somebody in that, in that transition was gentle, compassionate, and present to a, a compassionate death uh, where the, uh, there's an allowance of, of letting go and a, and a transition. I think there's, there's this role that could be played, especially by those who are steeped in the knowledge of the norms of capital, the norms of the business as usual economy, who can really start moving things to business less bad or business a little bit better. And every time there's a gradient there, and as they follow that curve down, in my experience, then the, the pathways, the bridges that are invisible today start to become more and more visible. Uh, they're, they're, the bridges that people are looking for are still invisible until they start following that path. And then once they're on the path, all of a sudden there's opportunities to midwife in the next economy and be part of the authentic expression of what's possible. And, and to ground this in an example, the whole B Corp movement, which we are champions of and celebrating um, as in, in a large part that some, what, there's like 2,700 or so B Corp, certified B Corps in the world today. So, B, uh, so wait just a second now, yeah. again, just for listeners who may not be up on that. Yep. So B Corp stands for For Benefit Corporation. Yeah, it, well, there's a, there's a certification. So there's, there's, there's a legal structure um, that in the United States and in different uh, part, countries in the world have adopted statutes where corporations can incorporate and in their charter actually declare that there are social and environmental benefits that are on parallel with or supersede the charter to maximize profits the standard corporate form and all the legal statutes that have been defined to create corporations in the world, the normal structure of those is to the, set out the, the, the objective of a corporation to maximize earnings for shareholders. And you can see the challenge, the problems that have been created from that, just uh, that, that cultural decision to form corporations that way. A benefit corporation is to incorporate uh, social and environmental benefits commensurate with or superseding the, the mandate for maximizing earnings or profits. There's a certification out there that is a point score, a 200 point score. And if you uh, 
adopt certain practices in the way you operate your enterprise, you can become certified. So a certified B Corp uh, is one that scores more than 80 points on this 200 point score gradient. And there's about 27 or 2800 or so of those certified B Corps in the world today. And these are companies who are voluntarily taking the taking these uh, practices and embedding them into the way they operate and structure their enterprise. And many of those companies look very similar to uh, companies that are operating in the business as usual context. They sell uh, foods, goods, insurance, uh, services. They look like businesses. Uh, there, but they are fundamentally distinct, uh, both in terms of their legal, legal covenants of who, who their stakeholders are, but also in terms of how they operate. Now, because they look so similar to business as usual enterprises, those who have been, who honed their skills and uh, became successful even in the business as usual economy will recognize and see a, probably an easy self-evident bridge. Oh. I can just be start or join and support a B Corp and I'm already participating in this. Now, this is a frame and again, they might not have the same frame or taxonomy there. If we see when people make the leap from the business as usual economy and start participating in uh, supporting B Corps as an actor, as a uh, uh, consumer, as a uh, entrepreneur or as somebody who has a job at a B Corp, they are actually participating in the hospicing out of the business as usual economy. And it's a very important role. Are B Corps as radical a transformation as the world needs to truly manifest an economy that works for the benefit of all life? I would say no. Uh, are they an important role right now of hospicing out the business as usual economy? I would say yes. And there's a number of important roles to be played. And that's one of the, and so as somebody joins a certified B Corp um, or supports a certified B Corp and following that gradient, all of a sudden additional bridges will become visible to more and more greater expressions, whole expressions, integral expressions of the next economy. That's been our experience. That's what we've seen. I get this image as you're, as you're speaking about, you know, uh, experiences I've had, uh, for instance, walking on the Appalachian Trail, you know, mm -hmm. in the fog. Mm -hmm. And I can, you know, when the fog is dense and I, I can see maybe, maybe three or four feet in front of where I'm walking. And so, yeah, there's a clear path, right? And, and there's a destination which I will arrive at. But in the process, I need to be patient and allow it to kind of reveal itself as I continue to go forward. Because if I just stay where I am, I'm not going to see anything and I'm not going to get there. Um, so I've got to have enough kind of confidence that, you know, as, as you say, you know, there's a transition there. There's kind of a, a gradual reveal in a sense that, that comes through taking that action and, and, and um, committing oneself to that forward motion. And, um, I, don't know, I like I like the visual from that. Um, I want to I want to shift to a slightly more meta level, if we can. Sure. Um, and and for listeners, there will be links down below down below this when we publish it, um, including a link for B Corp. Uh, obviously, links for some of the things that that um, Kevin is working on. Um, and you know, perhaps we'll throw in a few unexpected ones too, so just, uh, you'll be able to in investigate those further and more fully, to, you know, according to your interest. Um, but let's talk a little bit about you know we're talking we've talked about the economy and how central that is, and obviously that this is what Lyft is about. Um, but let's talk about kind of like what's a meaningful scale in terms of transformation, and let's talk about what's a meaningful time frame. I see. Yeah. And that's one thing that gets tricky. Uh, and I, I will kind of go fall back to my, my aforementioned interest in the pedagogy of permaculture design uh, to inform how I might respond to questions of scale and time. In permaculture, there's a principle that we talk about of actually embracing small and slow solutions. And 
the which is paradoxical, right? When we see in the enormity of the challenges and risks associated with things like climate change or species extinction, and yet small and slow, really. Uh, I remember I was on a panel years ago now, and somebody asked me, "Okay, global warming, what what is the most important solution today? Um, what, what's?" And I wasn't exactly flippant, but I I, I didn't. You know, my, my knee-jerk answer is to say there's no one silver bullet, no one most important thing to do. Um, there's patterns for sure, and I could think of uh, how I might answer that today a little bit differently. But at the time, I said, well, you know, I think kitchen gardens um, are in a very important solution. And I was kind of laughed at on the panel, and uh, um, I knew it would be a provocative kind of answer. But the idea of... Um, when you take into account the distortions of the global food system and its contribution to greenhouse gas emissions or the way nutrient-dense fruits and vegetables are grown in industrial agriculture with, I don't know, something like 20% spoilage in field, 15 to 20% spoilage in field, maybe 10 to 20% spoilage in transport, maybe 10 to 20% spoilage at the market. And I think in North America, 40% of what people bring home to eat, they don't eat. Uh, and so you look at the enormous amount of energy that goes into all aspects of production, transport, storage, distribution of food, and then the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the waste. It's uh, when you add it all up, it's, it's enormous. And if people have participate in the cycles of life and have a, a garden outside their kitchen door where they harvest food when it's ready to be eaten, um, harvesting no more than they need for the evening meal. And the, you know, the water resources can be reuse water from the household and there's hands in kitchens, uh, the waste streams of anything that's not uh, eaten can be composted on site, can be incorporated into the soil, and the practices of uh, no-till kind of kitchen gardening can actually be a carbon sequestering in terms of the soil and the biomass of the fruit trees and having all this dense nutrition close to home. If it's not the case that one kitchen garden is a solution to global warming, it's of course the pattern of over a billion kitchen gardens that starts in aggregate to look like a solution, a meaningful solution. And so this, this idea of small and slow and scale and timeline, uh, the, the key there is that things can be small and decentralized. In fact, there's a great uh, benefit to resilience. Our current economy tends to discount the value of resilience down to zero. And so uh, having this idea of distributed small scale solutions, almost at a personal, a family level, a community level, uh, and then seeing them uh, replicate and adapt regionally. And so that's where the timeline comes in. Well, how long does it take for uh, strategies that are small uh, to, what's the timeline for them to uh, replicate? and actually then in aggregate have this massive effect. And I think that's where I mentioned earlier, the great innovation of our time, if we're looking at, if people wanna be in, innovative and really create uh, newness into the world, it's how do we actually create some of these solutions that work, that are small in scale, uh, relatively small in scale. How do we generate them such that they are open source and uh, attractive to be adopted uh, in in um, a, you know the societal transformative way uh, at large. So in aggregate, they achieve a large scale uh, by you know this this alacrity of, of uh, being regionally replicated and adaptive. So there's actually a, a mechanism of thinking, innovate, innovating on the design of how these things are implemented, such that they can be easily adopted. And that's, I think, the, the great work of our time. Well, I think, yeah, I think a key element in there, as you say, is the aggregation, mm -hmm. right? You know, so, um, and that's, I, th I think, something which 
it's evident to people who've done it and not at all evident to people who haven't is that this is immensely satisfying work. Mm -hmm. It's a huge amount of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not just the reward of having better, you know, more nutritious vegetables. It's, it's everything about that process uh, is engaging and productive and fascinating and, um, you know, what, like the, the amount of interest and curiosity you put into it is directly related to the amount of enjoyment you take out of it. But there's also, and this, this comes back around to the, the kind of other element of, of scale um, or the other meta, actually, element that, that I want to just touch on before we wrap up, which is, you know, when we talk about... Um, climate change, you know, the, the pace at which it's happening. And now, of course, there's a, a lot of uh, kind of higher level uh, institutions, including the United Nations, which have, are saying, well, look, you know, guys, the scientists are right. We've basically got two years to get this together before we hit runaway irreversible climate change. Um, so there's this, there's this uh, you know, sense of Im- impending doom all the time. Um, and then we, you know, we see the we see the the condition of society and the divisiveness and the fear and you know all of this stuff which is happening on the other side of you know the non-regenerative the you know the problem the problem end of things, and we have to wonder because we've got enough people that if everyone basically planted a tree and watered it, we could reforest the planet now. Um, we we have the technologies, whether they're you know whether mm-hmm. uh, whether they're highly uh, technical technologies or whether they're basic technologies like how to grow food, how to make mm-hmm. compost, and that sort of thing. So we know how to do it. We've got the people. We know how to do it. We have the resources for the most part. They may mm-hmm. be concentrated into into too few hands or doing the wrong things with them, but that doesn't take away from the fact that they exist. So what is holding us back? What is slowing us down? What is diverting our attention down dangerous channels? And it, I have to come back to the fact that it has to do with, with politics, psychology, society, community. Mm-hmm. And one of the beautiful things about um, even kitchen gardens is that as much fun and satisfaction as it may be to work with your kids or your, you know, your, your partner or whatever in the garden, it's that much more to work with half the people on your block. Mm-hmm right? It's that much more to work through the local school and help them put in a garden. And then you're, t- you're maybe touching 50 different families with this, half of whom may decide to do something in their front garden. So there's that, there's that ability to, to inspire and replicate and proliferate, which has always been an essential component of humanity, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's like the I've been doing this work for more than 40 years, right? And, and I'm all constantly trying to get at the, and, and never with enough resources. So I'm always looking for these kind of leverage points. Like how do we get the most tip, you know, for the energy that we can apply or the knowledge that we can apply mm-hmm. to something. And it, to me, it, it's really come down to two things. You know, the, we, we live on a living planet, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's now pretty pretty clear that it's it's a, it's a living system which in 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 most ways um, is quite similar. It's not just metaphor; it's actually operatively similar to something like a cell or a, a cluster of cells. It's 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 a living system, and we could have paradise mm-hmm. if we did two things: take care of the planet and take care of one another. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's that straightforward, you know? And so, so what we need to, to maybe focus on more than, um, you know, in the regenerative conversation, we talk a lot about soils. We talk a lot about carbon cycles. We talk a lot about, uh, you know, ocean systems and, and sort of the more physical um, and, and to a certain extent, technical and scientific elements of things. But I think we don't speak enough about community and society in that same picture. It tends, we still tend to separate that off as a separate kind of conversation for a different time and maybe a different group of people. And what I really, really enjoy about your work, Kevin, and, and what I've seen about what, what Lyft is doing is that it's, it's knitting those back together intentionally. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, as a designer myself, I get it. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that more people are applying this, this design process and this design way of seeing things to the challenge we're dealing with. 
appreciate and, and support uh, all that you've shared there. It may build, building off of some of that and some of the kind of this meta and, and uh, kind of observations that one thing about the urgency piece, you know, is uh, the UN says we have just a couple years to act or, you know, we're at these, these uh, precipitous points. One thing that I think, uh, you know, if I, again, we're on a panel today and somebody said, what's the most important thing that somebody could do uh, regarding global warming? What's the more, most important thing for humanity? I generally respond now is to, especially in the affluent world, to raise our collective eco-literacy, which has been so impoverished. Um, actually, just to become more eco-literate, to understand this observational understanding of what's going on and sense-making is probably one of the most important things because this urgency uh, really is a message that is probably for people who are in the affluent world. Uh, we have two years before things get bad or before they're going to get bad for the next generation. It's not true. There's 800 million people who are hungry today. Yeah, it's there's bad. Over, it's there's, bad over, there's, there's over 850 million people who don't have adequate water or sanitation. It's really bad. There's a, there's a terrific amount of suffering today. There's nothing to wait for. The, the, the urgent, if you want to feel urgent about it, there's nothing to look to the future to feel urgent for. It's the opportunity is now. And that's a lot to hold, of course, no doubt. And again, this eco-literacy and understanding uh, what, what part of that eco-literacy will, will reveal is that the as you mentioned just a moment ago, ecosystem restoration, the actual technologies and practices that we could use in terms of our built environment and land use and agriculture uh, are, as Bill Mollison said, embarrassingly simple and self-evident. One of my teachers, Penny Livingston, likes to say, ecosystem restoration is simple. Ecosystem restoration, not so simple. Brilliant. So, so this idea of what would our organizations and our communities look like if they were crucibles of personal growth and development, collectively raising our uh, ego literacy as a, uh, in addition to our eco literacy so that we see that how our habits, behaviors, and norms, uh, our consumption, our, the way in which we organize our life, our vocation, our personal security strategies, how if, changing those in ways that, like you mentioned, build community, uh, giving gifts to each other, building reciprocal, resilient relationships with the people around us, training ourselves to communicate in ways that are actually connective and enable strategies to develop that can meet everyone's needs with no one left out. That internal work, that work on ourselves to understand our relationship to each other and to life that's the work of our time. And it's, like you said, it, it's, it's not always easy. Uh, it's, it's um, but I would say, if you find joy in that or fun, uh, the, it's a very interesting time to be alive. And I would posit that if you take your motivation from the anxiety of the urgency to try and sustain a life that's continually exploiting other life, I think that motivation may be misplaced. If you find the motivation in the joy of connecting with the life around you and connecting with yourself, if you can find joy in learning and discovery of what it is to be connected and in community, then we've got, then we've got a great shot. So I think finding the right motivation um, is pretty important. And you can find that, you know, and, and that's, that's the thing. It's like, maybe you don't currently feel like you know enough, you know, or maybe you don't feel like you're well enough connected. You don't know who to talk to. You don't know where, know where to go locally to, to sort of stick your fingers into it. But it's there and it's available. And that's the beautiful thing about being a human being. You know, there's a lot of a drawbacks from a planetary sense. But, you know, in terms of the human experience is, you know, we do have this great ability to, um, to fascinate, right? To, to delve into something and learn about it and have that experience where the more we do it, the more enthusiastic we become and the more we learn about it, the happier it makes us. 
So that's all available. And it's really, it's almost just like, you know, get up out of the chair and get out the door. There's a, there's a, a, a radio uh, personality here in the Bay Area, um, Carolyn Casey. She, and Carolyn's want to say, uh, uh, cooperators are standing by. Um, and uh, consider listeners, if you're, if you're looking for how to get involved, um, reach out to Lift Economy. We'll do our best to connect you with all the allies that are around. Uh, we, there is this huge next economy movement and it is largely culturally invisible now, but it's becoming more and more visible every day. I think that's a really good place to, to wrap up this conversation. Um, we'll have all the links, as I said, we're, you know, by the time we get this published, we'll have all the links below the post. And I definitely would encourage everyone to check out what Lyft Economy is doing, whether you decide to take part in the program or listen to the excellent series of podcasts, which are on the Lyft Economy website as well. Um, it's like the world is, is your oyster in this sense. Um, it's, it's very impressive from my, from my perspective. Thanks, Kevin, so much for taking the time to, to speak with us about this. Definitely my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. R-A-S-A dot A-G. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.